You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode alongside of me is our chairman and chief investment officer. You know, I, I prefer to call him dad, Bill Smead. Dad, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, this is exciting. Um, this episode marks the start to the second season of A Book With Legs podcast. We launched the podcast at our Investor Oasis in 2022, uh, last February. Um, the idea for this came to me while I was about to take off on a business trip in November of 21. This has been incredibly fun to discuss and, and talk about last year's episodes in season one. We've learned a lot about this process. You know, I just think more about media, you know, how have we created this media, how have we created a podcast, how do you introduce people to this medium. As I'm sure listeners have taken away, this is a long form study of the books that we talk about with the authors that wrote them. We are trying to not shortchange a reader who wants to really understand the work that we are discussing. I speak for myself, my dad, our whole firm. When I say that this has been a pleasure for us, we thank our listeners and want to encourage them to continue to send us recommendations for the books that they love. We will invite those authors onto the podcast. So let's get it to it today. Uh, season two, Episode one, we're glad you've joined us for this episode. We are going to talk about a book that takes Warren Buffett's life and threads the needle with the philosophies that shaped him. Robert Hagstrom is joining us to talk about his book, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind. Robert has published other books, including Investing, The Last Liberal Art, which we discuss in the eighth episode of season one of the podcast, and other books like The Essential Buffett. Mr. Hagstrom is the Chief Investment Officer and Senior Portfolio Manager at Equity Compass, Prior to joining Equity Compass, he was a portfolio manager at Leg Mason Capital Management, running the Leg Mason Growth Trust. Before we get going with Robert, Bill, is there anything that you're looking forward to in our conversation with him? Well, I just love expanding, thinking about the most important fundamentals of good long-term investing. Yeah, and what I really like about this book is I love studying great investors, and that's something uh, Robert's written a lot on in Buffett and get to continue to do this in this work. So Robert, we're excited to visit with you on another one of your works. Uh, we're glad to have you back on the podcast. Well, Cole and uh, Bill, it's great to be with you again. As Cole illuminated in the podcast, this book treads closely with some of your past work, but distinguish itself. What inspired you to write this? Well, I think, you know, if we go back to, uh, I think it was a 2017 Berkshire shareholder meeting prior to the pandemic. And they were asking a question about capital allocation going forward, but it was really kind of a subtle question about who is going to make these decisions when uh, you and Charlie are no longer up on the stage. Uh, one of those delicate questions. And, and, and Warren, you know, basically, you know, he, he said, well, the board's aware and, you know, we have a list, things like that. And he goes, but whoever it is, whoever it will be, will be someone who has a money mind. And I'd never heard that term, money mind, uh, from Warren before. Nothing, nothing in his writings that you can find, nothing in his interviews, magazines, whatever the case may be. This was a new term. 
And he began to think about the kind of the mental aspect, the uh, I guess maybe the philosophical aspect, the temperamental aspect. Think, you know, Graham had written a little bit about this in The Intelligent Investor, but he was really talking about a mindset that was necessary in order to get the seat as uh, CEO of Berkshire Hathaway and the allocator of capital. And my reflection, uh, Bill and, and Cole, was that I had spent all my time on method, which is trying to figure out exactly what are the methods that you use to pick stocks uh, that had the attributes that Warren Buffett looked for. And that came out in the tenets, the investment tenets of Warren Buffett way. But I really didn't spend a whole lot of time on the mental aspects, the philosophical, the temperamental aspect. And I came away from that meeting with the, you know, with kind of a, an epiphany that I'd only gotten the story half right. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I knew the methods, I knew the tenets, but there was another mental aspect. So the book was meant to be a journey on the mental aspects. And we, we spent a lot of time on his influencers and, and I'll stop here and, and let you guys weigh in, but nobody had really spent a lot of time on, on his dad. Howard Buffett was a huge influence. He said he was the most important, you know, most important person in his life, Ben Graham being second. So we spent a lot of time going back through, you know, Howard, Holman, Buffett and his upbringing, uh, you know, family, attitudes, philosophy, and things like that. And that helped weave an interesting story as well. So I think you preempted my next question, but I have to ask it anyway. So um, you mentioned the the term money mind, you know, hadn't really occurred to you before when they mentioned that being the, you know, the temperament of the person coming in. I don't know if you remember this, but you kind of touched on this in the book, but in the in the Berkshire meetings, Buffett would often mention, you know, as you as you refer to uh, in this book, he mentions Phil Fisher. But one of the other characters he mentions was actively at the Berkshire meetings in the eighties and nineties was a gentleman by the name Phil Carey. Does that name ring a bell at all? Okay. And he did write uh, a book called Money Mind. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what I was my question. I was yeah, because he, he in ninety one he wrote this book called uh, A Money Mind at Ninety, which is really like an autobiography of his journey and. And I love it, Robert, because he spent part of his brokerage time in Seattle. And, you know, I'm a Seattle kid. And so I, there's parts of that book. I, I was going to ask you that question. Have you read Correa's book? And did, did that influence some of your thinking on this? Because I noticed that Correa never got a mention. And I thought, you know, from the grave, he's probably reaching out saying, Robert, give me a chance. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm embarrassed. I have the book on my shelf and I got the book soon after I wrote <laughs> inside The Ultimate Money Mind. And I did not know of this book, and I apologize to uh, Phil and his family. I certainly would have referenced it. But having said that, uh, Warren never once referenced Money Mind to Phil Correa. Correct. Uh, that, I, yeah. that I know of. So, you know, I was excusably ignorant, but ignorance is never an excuse. But I, I didn't make that connection in, until later. And I thumbed through the book. But your point's well taken. It's, it's a worthwhile read. It's certainly a book that should be in your library. But and it speaks to, you know, this mental aspect of how you separate yourself from the, uh, the nuances of, of day-to-day changes in stock prices and try to think independently. But your point's well taken, Cole. Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, just so listeners know, uh, that book was published back in 91. And to Robert's point, it's not a well-known book. The other Cray book out there is The Art of Speculation, uh, which is another book I'd recommend. So Robert, you talk early in the book about Warren's insatiable thirst for understanding how money's made. In business, you know, this started when he was a kid with his reading of F.C. Miniker's book, 1,000 Ways to Make $1,000. So, so some would take this as a, in being a greedy child, right? There's part of our culture that would say this is a greedy child. At the same time, it's not the greed, it's the mental exercise is really what I think you do a wonderful job of explaining. It's the exercise for Warren to complete the task. Can you explain this paradox? Yeah, that's interesting take 
there, Cole. I guess I, when I thought about it, um, you know, he was raised in a family of entrepreneurs, you know, although his dad, we can talk about his dad in a minute, you know, it was his grandfather, you know, being in the grocery store business and, and, and on there. So there was a retailer business entrepreneurial geneticism, I guess, in the, in the Buffett world. And if you kind of do the lineage of all the Buffetts, going back to when actually they came, uh, you know, to Nebraska, it, it's a whole mental aspect of um, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, making, making money, making a, a living for yourself. It's kind of an entrepreneurial type idea that I think was, was highly charged, particularly when you think about it. He grew up, you know, on the heels of the Great Depression. So making money and, and things like that was you know, kind of front and center for a lot of people and, and certainly for Warren and, and certainly for the Buffett family. So I think he got it from that. And when his dad had a grocery store, you know, it wasn't too far removed from there that Warren set up his little grocery store on a card table on the sidewalk, you know, yep. selling chewing gum and things like that. So it seems to me that the apple didn't fall far from the Buffett family tree. Yeah. Warren always talks about uh, he's happy that we had the depression because his dad would only spend an hour or two at the brokerage office because there was no business. And, <laughs> and he, he was conceived in 1930. He says, <laughs> you talk about the reference library being the largest room on the executive floor of Berkshire. We like to tell people the most valuable part of our office is our library. It's what enriches our investors. We see reading in decline nationally. We see people wanting to specialize in their reading like a doctor would. Some of this may reach way back to our prior discussion. What do you see as it pertains to the connection between being readers and reading and the investment community? Well, I, I can't think of anything more important in becoming a successful investor is to, is to read. And, and to read, you know, is to become independent in your thought. When, when you're reading, the self-confidence uh, goes up because, you know, you have either information, knowledge, or wisdom that you've obtained through your readings, and then it arms you if you will, as you go out and, and do battle with the market. So we reference, you know, his dad, you know, the whole Buffett family probably would be a genetic offspring of, of Ralph Waldo Emerson and the whole idea of, of you know, self-confidence and things like that. And the self-confidence arrow really speaks to your ability to think independently. To think independently certainly requires reading. And you can go back and Harold Bloom talks about this, the great professor at Yale and things like that, is that reading really should be a separate discipline unto itself, you know, separate from accounting, mm -hmm. separate from economics. That in fact, learning the art of reading and what reading does for you, it, it should be a, a you know a, a course that people take uh, through high school and college. So reading and Warren, you know, basically being not only um, independent but self-confident, he didn't want other people's opinions. He might listen to them, but the decisions he made were his decisions, not someone else's decisions. In order to make your own decisions, you know, circles back to that ability to have self-confidence, to think independently and have conviction of ideas that you can't get that without reading, without uh, obtaining wisdom and information independently from what the newspapers are saying or the neighbor across the street or something like that. You, you've got to be solidified in that opinion, which comes from reading. In, in October of 2020, Charlie Munger gave a talk to Caltech alums. The professor conducting the interview asked about training good investors. Charlie commented, you can't train that. You either have it or you don't. He commented this by saying, you figure out how good you are at poker by playing poker. Isn't this the principle you're explaining from Minneker, who wrote, the way to begin making money is to begin? Yeah, I, I would push back 
on Charlie, you know, I think you, I think you can make a, a good investor. I think you, you know, now some people are maybe wired in such a way that they will have those, those attributes, um, you know, front and center that makes the job a little bit easier. But, you know, I, I'll go back to Warren. He said, the trick of investing is pick the right heroes and figure out what they're doing. And once you figure out what they're doing, you just imitate that. So, you know, very carefully pick the right people. And if you look at Robert Hackstrom, all he did was pick the right hero. You know, he picked, he picked this guy, you know, Warren Buffett. And he said, I'm going to learn everything I can about Warren Buffett. And so we completely consumed anything and everything that was ever written by him or about him and his meetings and things like that. And it, and it probably made me a B-plus student, not an A student, but a B-plus student, above average. And, and, and so I, I do think you can make an investor by making them smarter through reading, but you've got to make sure that you just pick the right hero, the one that you want to imitate. And, you know, I could have picked a trader. I could have picked, a, you know, a quant, a quant guy. I could have picked, you know, uh, you know, Renaissance, Jim Simmons. I could have picked a number of people, but Buffett was the one that resonated with me. And, and Warren spoke to me in a way that no one else did. So he was the guy that I imitated. Yeah, that's two of us. So you explained early in the book, you, you know, you get in this idea of, you know, what Graham taught, what his principles were in, in, in writings like security analysis and the intelligent investor. Graham was interested, uh, as you point out, in identifying uh, the current net worth of a business by taking current assets and subtracting out all liabilities. In other words, getting something kind of for free. Book value from an accounting perspective is a proxy of, of a company's net worth by definition. Berkshire Hathaway started showing in 2000 the book value per share growth of the company since 1965 versus the S&P 500 performance. Buffett has moved away from providing that, and I can't remember if it was, it was around 17 or 18 that he came in and said, we're, we're not going to show that anymore, you know, that we don't think it's as good of a measure as it's been in the past. Do you agree with him moving away from that? Because there are certain aspects that we could kind of him or haw over here internally, but I'd love to hear your take on Berkshire moving away from looking at, in effect, book value per share growth, which I would argue is really the growth of the net worth of the business. Well, you're, you're right, Colin. Under you know generally accepted accounting principles, um, you know you, you could make an argument that that is a, a thermometer, a measuring stick for the growth of, of value of a company as its hard assets defined mm-hmm. under GAAP principles. But as Warren has talked about, and, and we, if you go back to the 1992 annual report, the shareholder Berkshire uh, annual report in 1992, that was where Warren wrote the reformation, reformation. It's kind of like the Martin Luther of investing. He wrote the reformation of, of value investing, where he laid out very plainly and very succinctly that value investing has nothing to do with price earnings ratios, price, you know, book values and things like that. It was very much 100% the cash that comes out of the business. Mm-hmm. And so he introduced John Burr Williams that year, and and John Burr Williams then became uh, the the beacon uh, that he focused on. He later then began to talk about. He didn't really articulate this um, fully that I wish he had, but uh, the the impact of return on capital, and argued that the very best business is one that earns very high rates of return on invested capital over an extended period of time. So therefore, there's your compounding aspect, right? So you yep. generate cash. That's important. But then you got to earn above the cost of capital. And if you can earn above the cost of capital and compound it over time, that's how value has grown. So what happened, whether it's Coca-Cola, when he bought that in 87 and 88, it was a high P.E. stock, high price to book, below average dividend yield relative to the market. But clearly, you know, it was doing a pretty good job of generating excess cash and earning above the cost of capital and could continue to compound that globally over a long period of time. So... Book value, as Bill Miller once said to me, he says, Gap, you know, I know it was Warren. Warren said, you know, Gap is where you start, not where you end. 
And so you start there, but then you make those adjustments. So in the tenants in Warren Buffett, we talk about owner earnings, which is taking gap earnings and adjusting it for owner earnings cash flow by adjusting you know, maintenance capex and, and subtracting the non-cash charges from depreciation and amortization. So you're already messing with book value, just getting to owner earnings. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not a, and, and then I will say this, moving on to the better businesses and working with Bill Miller for 14, 15 years, it became increasingly clear, and this speaks specifically to Apple, and we can go there if you want, but uh, the technology side of the world had the best businesses, does have the best businesses. They're not capital sure. intensive. They have very high returns on capital. They're global businesses. They can compound. And book value is not, you know, a moniker here for us. You know, it is, uh, if anything, probably book value is understated. Michael Mobison has written about this and uh, the, in, the cost of intangible investing. Pharmaceuticals went through the same thing. Research and all that was 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 expensed through the income statement. And, and that you know, obviously, uh, not only made your price earnings multiple high, but your book value low. Instead of capitalizing it in the brick and mortar world, they simply expensed it in the pharmaceutical world, and they expense it through uh, the technology world. Let me do a follow up on that because I agree with you. So, to your point, you know, someone expensing is effectively understating their book value. Okay, now let's just say, let's say God could come into this equation right now, Robert, and say, okay, I'm going to adjust all book values to what they truly are worth on a tangible basis, even if they're intangibles, right? And so God comes in and with a stroke of a pen, boom, we look at all these gap numbers with adjusted books that correctly associate with assets. That would cause return on equity for the new adjusted book values to drop though, because we're increasing the quote unquote E of return on equity, the book equity. So, so I guess one of the things that I'd love to ask you about is because Buffett and Munger really look at return on equity. It's their primary way of thinking about the return because I don't think there's much debate over is book value right now a good proxy for what a stock's worth? The answer is no. The question is where, to your point, where's the book value going? And therefore return on equity is great because even if there's you know, really higher adjusted book value, it should be captured in higher ROE going forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, clearly- you know, by having a lower book value, you know, the returns on invested capital are higher because, you know, you're not capitalizing uh, those investments over time, you're expensing them. So Correct. you have a very low capital base and therefore a very high return on capital. Uh, Mike Mobison has made the argument, and it's interesting, I need to spend more time with it, that we should probably look at ways of capitalizing the intangibles. And he's done some work on on if you were to capitalize the intangibles, you're right, Cole, the return on capital for technology businesses would come down. But they wouldn't come down that much. I mean, you know, so let's just say in the brick and mortar world and Coca-Cola and things like that, maybe they're kind of 15 to 20% return on capital businesses. It's funny you mentioned that about the pharmaceutical companies. The, the, we've been involved for years with Merck and Amgen, and they put 17 to 20% of their pre-tax income each year into R&D. And the market looks at them like, oh, well, we doubt your ability to have fruit come out of that in a way that they, they don't doubt Apple's ability to bring out another great product three or four years from now. And we compared the return on equity of, of them against Apple, and it made somebody like Amgen look very attractive to us. Yeah. Well, you know, I, would, I might make the argument, and I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an official uh, you know, expert on pharmaceuticals, but I, I would make the argument that's a little more dicier when you think about the amount of money that it takes to bring a new compound to, to market the billions. And when you get there, you know, you're hoping that you're going to get uh, FDA approval. So it's a little bit more riskier transition 
than yep. going from Apple 13 to Apple 14 or, you know, a new iteration of iPad and things like that. But that's a, that's a separate argument. But that, what it does say, if you were, yeah, yeah. And, but if you really capitalize the intangibles, you might not have, you know, I, I think Microsoft's a 40% return on capital business. So maybe it's a 25% return on or 30% return on capital business after you, after you capitalize the intangibles. I don't know. I, you know, I haven't run the math like that, but. It would be a lower well, yeah, return on investing capital, but it still would be a very attractive return on capital. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah, but but I mean, you think about the Buffett game of compounding, that extra 15% is a big 15%, right? Because it, it what it compounds money at, you know, from a forward perspective. So that's that's one of the things that we've we've thought a lot about, Robert. And I think your book does such a great job of of is is okay, let's be cognizant of this, but then we sit down at like you point, gap is just the start. All right, so if we adjust our book value higher, what, how do we need to adjust the gap ROE, for example, right? So we're, we're, we're totally agreement. That's the great part about accounting. It's like physics. For every action, there's an equal and an opposite reaction. And that's all we're talking about here is physics in gap accounting. So let's, let's pivot because you, you do a great job of talking about Buffett closing his partnerships in 1969. Um, you know, many people forget that, I think. Um, and we've studied this a lot as we find it like the most peculiar thing. I mean, the guy that loves owning businesses and stocks, he closes up his shop. Um, so the reason why I bring it up is because uh, we look a lot at St. Louis Fed data. Um, and I don't know if you look at the same, but, but in the Fred data, um, one of the stats that we love is equities as a percentage of, of household financial assets. And the data goes back to 52. Interestingly, 1969 was the highest equity ownership up until that time among US households, okay? Um, I'm going to quote your book here because I think it typifies his sentiment at the time. Um, you, you have in your book, uh, on one point, however, I am clear, he said, speaking about Buffett, I will not abandon a previous approach whose logic I understand, although I find it difficult to apply, even though it may, uh, it, even though, uh, it, it may mean foregoing large and apparently easy profits, uh, 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 let's see, easy profits to embrace an approach, which I don't fully understand, have not practiced carefully and which possibly could lead to substantial permanent capital loss, end quote. So we love this statement because he's closing the partnerships. He says, I'm not willing to go there. I'm not going to make my money that way. He's standing on principle. The nonconformity that you speak of in your book of Emerson is just showing itself to be true in that moment. We, we feel like that statement could have been pulled out of 1969 and slapped at the end of 2021, by the way. And funny enough, the, the St. Louis Fed data was the highest household equity ownership we'd ever seen. So, uh, you know, this idea, and Munger commented on this, we'll get to that a little bit later here, but um, do you agree with this view that like, you know, the, the young Buffett said, I'm not about this game. He called it charlatans in another quote I read in other books at that time. Do, do you have the same view that we just ended a mania in 2021, not dissimilar to 1969? Um, there were, uh, there absolutely were aspects of mania in 2020. What I find interesting, Cole, about this, and um, it, I would also argue it has similarities to 2000 to 2002. Now, I didn't manage money in 73 and 74. I was graduating high school, but I managed money in 2000 to 2002. Yeah. And there's certain aspects of 2000 and 2002 that, that were here in, in 2021 and 22. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is different um, about this is that um, this was a wholesale flushing of the entire growth complex. So you had high quality mega cap stocks, and then you had what I would call venture capital stocks, stocks that probably shouldn't have been public, that should have been more venture capital to come out later when they had real cash earnings. So, you know, Agreed. Like, yep. look at 
you know, the Zooms and the, you know, Carvanas, and I'm picking on things that are down, but there were a lot of speculative things. But what surprised me about this market was the quality, the, the big cap, high quality side of the market went down 40 and 50% at, at the same rate. Now, some things went down 60, 70, and 80, but big stuff went down 50%. And if you've done the math on what a change in the risk-free rate would have done, you know, moving from one and a half to four percent, you were still under modern portfolio theory. You were still discounting cash flows less than ten percent. Now we discount at ten percent because that's our opportunity cost of capital to be in the market. Yeah. But a ten percent, you know, discount in the market would have brought things down ten to fifteen percent, but not fifty. And and I think the whole Nasdaq complex was down thirty five percent at its worst. So sure. there clearly was an overreaction that the good stuff went down with the bad stuff. And, and that happens in market sell-offs. And the other thing, and Cole, you probably know this, and Bill, is that what I find interesting about this year is that it doesn't matter what type of growth portfolio that you had, and whether you were conservative, high-quality, mega-cap, but everybody seems to be down about the same number, plus or minus. Everybody's down Correct. anywhere from 20 to 30. I mean, and you've got really smart people, you know, James Anderson at Bally Gifford and Dennis Lynch at Morgan Stanley. Look at T. Rowe Price's growth fund, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just trying to make an, an, an observation. T. Rowe Price growth fund is one of the most conservative growth portfolios out there. I mean, they hit the ball 175 yards down the middle of the fairway. They're never out of bounds. It's a, you know, it's a very clean portfolio. I think they're down like 30-some-odd percent. You know, Growth Fund yeah. of America, the big one, is down almost 30. You know, everybody. So when you see everybody going down the, the same amount, plus or minus, it's not talking about stock picking anymore. This is just, you know, abandon a style. And this was this was pretty much the one of the most um, puzzling ones. Now, in 2000 to 2002, a lot of things that went down were big cap, but they should have gone down. So the market was trading 36 times earnings in 2000, right? That was the average multiple. Today, the market was trading 21 times earnings before it went down. Uh, the yield on the 10-year was 6% in 2000. Today, it, you know, it was around 3, 35 as we were getting into the difficult part of 2022. But here's the interesting point. If you look at the big four horsemen in 2000 and 2002, it was mm -hmm. Cisco, Dell, Microsoft, and I think Oracle. They were trading 65 times earnings. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's a little rich, right, with a 6% yield and, uh, you know, on sure. the 10-year. But when you had Microsoft trading at 28, 29 times earnings, and you had you know Google at 30 times earnings, and Amazon's a separate animal. We could spend an hour on Amazon. But you had a lot of things that, to me, were not overvalued. Were they cheap? No. But were they significantly nosebleed overvalued? No. But they still went down 30, 40, and 50%. So this is an interesting market. And you know the, the the gloss on this, and I'm talking my own book, and you can call me out on it, is that the most the most mispriced part of the market is now the growth side of the market, and there's some things that are deeply undervalued, and there's some things that are still nosebleed that need to be washed out, and and that's where the game is being played right now. So I have a follow-on question on that, Robert, because it it's um, so you pointed out something in the book that I was not aware of. I mean, I knew that you know he closes partnerships. And I knew that Sequoia Fund was open. So he said, hey, go see my friend Bill Ruane in, in New York. And obviously he was going to be the chairman of Berkshire from there on forward. But what I didn't know is that he gave the investors another alternative, which was he said, hey, you could go own 10-year Mooney bonds and they provide you know pretty similar returns to what I think the stock market will. So um, I'm going to ask you a question that I've been asking other people that manage money that have come on the podcast on their books, okay? Um, and I'll give you our answer you know, in advance, just so you have a little time to think about it. But 
Um, the question we pose is, and I, we would have said this to start the year, I would say it now, would you rather own the S&P 500 right now or would you rather own the 10-year treasury? And I say it because I want to connect it up also to the St. Louis Fed data. If, if the correlation between St. Louis Fed data and the 10-year forward return of the S&P is like negative 0.85. They're, they're, they're not a perfect relationship inversely, but they're pretty close. And even right now, it, it looks like this, the S&P is probably only going to make about, say, you know, uh, 2 to 3% you know, 10 years forward using that data, not saying that's perfect again. Well, I would take the S&P. Um, and I know, you know, where the earnings, uh, where the dividend yields are now. But I, I, I was, I had written a paper in January 2010 after the financial crisis, because at that time, people were really skeptical about the future rate of returns of, of the market and, and felt that we, that we were in, destined for a sideways market. And so I wrote a piece called Who's Afraid of a Sideways Market? And I pointed out we've had sideways markets, you know, for 200 years, but the one that is closest to us in time was, um, you know, in October, uh, I'm sorry, 75, 1975, the Dow Jones in October was 784. Fast forward seven years of the Dow in August of 1982 was 784. <laughs> so, you know, there's a pretty nasty sideways market. The multiple had dropped from 12 times to seven times. Yields were better. You know, the yields in the in the 70s were, were 5%. So yield mm -hmm. became a very, very big part of the total return of the market. So one of the arguments that we have in our shop is, you know, dividends are going to matter going forward. If it is somewhat of a sideways market, yield becomes a, a bigger piece. And I think the returns that we've had over the last 10 years of close to 15% are probably not repeatable in the next 10 years. But what I went on to do, which is, I, I think I said to you, I wouldn't want to own the S&P 500. I wouldn't want to own... Um, stocks, I'd rather just, you know, pick my own individual stocks. So I don't sure. want bonds and I don't want an index fund. Amen, because brother. I, yeah. So what I did was I looked at, because I pointed out, you know, how was it that Buffett and Berkshire and Sequoia Fund had such phenomenal returns in a sideways market? Well, obviously yeah. stock pickers. So we went in and looked and said, okay, what is the percentage chance that stocks double in any one year over that period, 75 to 82? And, and, and we took every one of those one-year periods, only 3% of the stocks ever doubled in one year. Over rolling three years, about 18% of the stocks, not a bad number. But over five-year rolling periods, you know, 38% of the stocks on a rolling five-year periods had doubled. And that's a 15% average annual return, which would have been a killer return to have. Sure. Then we basically went into that list and said, okay, who were the guys that did the best? And, and not surprising, energy, because we know we were in an oil embargo. Industrials were right next to them. But right after that, information technology. 42% of the stocks in information technology doubled over that time. Sure. Financials did pretty good. And then consumer discretionary uh, also had. So it, it was, you know, a stock picker's market. You know, what 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 Stephen Jay Gould, the biologist, called spread of excellence, figuring out those that did have high returns on capital, did have good sales growth, did have good cash earns. Those are the ones that did fantastic. Sure. Yeah. And we, yeah. we sent that study out and, and it came back universally. The stocks that outperformed from 75 to 82 were undervalued, had good earnings quality growth. Uh, the ones that did worse were momentum strategies, which is what's dominating the market today. So if you look sure. at what's going on in the market, it's momentum. It's not valuation. Sure. Uh, we believe people miss an important element of Berkshire Hathaway structure that is missed when talking about the textile business. It was a C-Corp structure. In, in 1969, C-Corps paid taxes at a rate of 52.8%. 
uh, versus 70% on the highest tax bracket for individuals. Wasn't this Warren just outsmarting everyone on the structure of how he was going to compound the money? Absolutely. I mean, if Warren, you know, Warren may be um, humble about it, but he knows the tax law very well. <laughs> that doesn't escape him at all. He understands, uh, you know, how to make a, how to make an extra buck when it comes to understanding taxes. So yeah, that that, that was a no brainer. But but to Cole's point. You know, when Warren gave up in 69, you know, it was, you know, Jerry Sy and all those guys were coming into the market at Fidelity and it was, you know, it was growth momentum market and he wasn't, he wasn't getting paid for that. But he was already, you know, still buying stocks. If you look at what he did with Berkshire Hathaway, and you guys know this, you know, he basically, uh, you know, kind of monetized the balance sheet and started buying stocks inside Berkshire Hathaway. So sure. even though he gave up the partnership, he still had a hand in the game. Yeah. Uh, a number of years ago at our Rotary Club in Seattle, uh, uh, Bill Gates' dad was, was speaking, and he was using Warren Buffett as an example of someone that, that was in favor uh, of uh, the estate taxes and, and the way the law was going to pertain to that. Uh, it says Buffett's been very philanthropic over the last 20 years uh, particularly, but a criticism is he has virtually sheltered himself from income taxes in virtually every means possible, right? No, hasn't paid a dividend on Berkshire. You know, it's just whatever they pay inside the C Corp. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, is that a fair criticism of him that uh, – uh, you know, it's nice to tell other people how to be philanthropic when you, you you're you don't pay any taxes. Your, your efforts <laughs> have not contributed to the federal government's budget for the last <laughs> outside of your corporate tax structure. fifty years. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you took the corporate taxes at Berkshire Hathaway, I think he's been more than generous to the United States government over the over the last years. But he himself, personally, you could argue what he has done is given himself the ability to compound his wealth at an even higher rate than he would Correct. have otherwise done had he paid taxes. Then the question is, what did he do with the money? And I dare find anyone that says what he's been doing with his wealth by giving it away to different charitable organizations was a stingy, un-American, <laughs> not, not a good contributory to, uh, you know, of the well-being of the planet. Um, you know, he's just found a, a way to do it that's getting a higher return on his investment than he otherwise would have done had he paid the taxes. So I don't have a problem with this. <laughs> not at all. Robert, Robert, you highlight what we believe is a very important point in the craftsmanship of value investing. The history of the discipline is, is that even today, there, there's still many value arbitrageurs, but fewer value investors sinking to compound money like Warren and Charlie. As you point out, Graham never mentions the word compound. What, why do you think people are unwilling to do this? It, it, is it the risk that you buy something, it doubles, and then goes back to your cost basis? Well, you know, that, that, that's always in there. The volatility is always in there. I think, I think it's a psychological um, uh, aspect. I mean, we, you know, the you know, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman and, you know, loss aversion and prospect theory and all that. It's just it's very painful for people when they, and here we go back to reading, right? When they view changes in prices as changes in value, you know, they suffer during bad markets. They don't like that stock price going down, even though Warren and Ben Graham both told you, you know, there's a difference between short-term quotational loss and permanent capital loss. Nobody seems to be able to to kind of put that into their psyche and move forward. So long-term investing in a volatile market is extremely, extremely uh, hard to do. 
you know, you rem- you both remember that, you know, Warren and, and, you know, Ben Graham said it first, you know, investors would be much better off if there wasn't a stock market that gave you prices every single day. <laughs> Just don't don't look at it. But that that that's very, very hard for people to do. So long horizon arbitrage, which is what Warren and, and Ben Graham, you could argue to an aspect. But what Warren clearly does, long horizon arbitrage is a very, very profitable way in which to compound wealth, but psychologically very difficult when you've got a price every day. And, and I said in a meeting, I said, you know, who's got this game down pat is private equity. Private equity is basically doing long horizon arbitrage. Now, you know, they would argue that they go in and they change management, or they streamline the business. It's somehow or another they're brilliant about doing it. But basically, private equity returns over the last 20, 30 years are nothing more than the S&P 500 plus 50% leverage. Okay, well, but what the game is that they don't have to price their book of business every day. So each year or each quarter, you know, it's a dollar. And then maybe next quarter, it's a dollar three. And then maybe next quarter, it's a dollar. And then the next quarter, it's a dollar ten. And at the end of five years, it's a dollar forty or something, you know. But they're not, they're not yeah. trading, you know, they don't have to price that portfolio. It doesn't go for a dollar and then go to 90 cents or 85 cents. Very rarely ever does that. You know, it always just doesn't have high volatility. And then you get the big payoff in five or six years and everybody goes, this is great. Yeah. Well, you could do the same thing in the S&P 500 if you levered it 50% and, and never looked at the stock price. You get the same returns as private equity out without having to pay the fees. Well, yeah. I, I, for another discussion, Robert, I, I've never seen a structure, and by this is total mongerism, where both the investor and the manager agree to smooth returns together because it's best for both of them. So uh, I, I won't go into that because uh, as we're watching B read, I think we're going to learn more on that subject matter. You, you then jump to the discussion of Mr. Market, which, of course, is always one of our, our favorite subjects. The stock market zenith was reached while investors constantly asked, what is the stock market telling us about the future? One of our favorite annoying thoughts that people have. Graham's Mr. Market didn't assume intelligence like today's stock market investors have for Mr. Market. Uh, what, what do you think this is? Well, I love Warren's quote is that the market is frequently efficient, but not always efficient. Um, and if you go back to Jim Zawerke, Jim Zawerke at the, uh, the New Yorker wrote a great, great book called The Wisdom of the Crowds. And a lot of people have worked on this, Mobison and others, that, you know, most often the market is reasonably efficient, plus or minus. Uh, and it reaches extremes, uh, bullish and bearish extremes, when there's a breakdown in diversity. So the, the most perfect efficient mechanism out there is one that is diversified, has multiple different inputs, uh, has an aggregator. The stock market is an aggregator of your votes. But more importantly, you have to bet. You know, you have to have skin in the game. And and when it's widely diversified um, and there's many, many different opinions, both bullish and bearish, working through the system, the market seems to be reasonably efficient. But it's the breakdown in the diversity that causes the markets to go to extremes, that, that one side becomes overly bullish and has high expectations going forward or what we're seeing today, overly bearish, and uh, there's no worth to good growth stocks anymore. And, and so that breakdown in diversity gives you those good entry points, whether to leave the market when it's overvalued or to certainly pressure bet during the, the, the bearish markets when, when – and bearish markets, time is compressed. I mean, you know, people are not looking out next week, next month, next year. They're just worried about tomorrow. As you point out in your writing, Charlie Munger's highest calling is to be rational. In December 2021, he said at the Sohn Heart and Minds Investment Leaders Conference, quote, I just can't stand participating in these insane booms. There's no great company that can't be turned into a bad investment just by raising the price. 
He also said it was crazier than the dot-com bubble. I think he called the totality of it uh, is, is the term he used. Do you, do you agree with Munger's view that investors lost their rationality even in great companies last year? Well, like I said, and you know, Bill, in some companies, yes, and other companies, no. Um, you know, I, well, I, let me rephrase that. Yes, people um, seem to lose rationality last year. Some of it, you could argue, was justified in that there were some things nosebleed shouldn't be trading that, and a rational person wouldn't buy that or would have sold it. But there are some things that, that were sold down that, that shouldn't have been sold down, and so the rational person wouldn't have sold that. If anything, they'd be buying it. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on rationality, and it's certainly the backbone. I think, you know, Charlie said something. If you had one word to describe Warren and one word to describe Berkshire, it would be rationality. I would add, you know, and we talked about this a little bit in the book, I would argue it's pragmatism, you know, that we have to be thinking about as well, which is what's working, you know, mm -hmm. what, because the markets are evolving all the time. The market that Warren is in today is totally different than the market of the 70s, totally different than the Ben Graham markets of the 50s, much less the 30s and 40s. Let's, let's jump to the next question then, Robert, because I, I, you're, you're writing in this book on Emerson and its effect on obviously, you know, Buffett's dad and then obviously Buffett. Um, it, 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 it invokes a lot of our deepest convictions, um, as, as people who decamp from a coastal city to pick stocks in the desert, where there is a desert of stock pickers, <laughs> you're writing on this as part of our loins, to be honest, um, on solitude and community, you write that he thinks the community is distraction. Second, his nonconformity is key. Um, lastly, spirituality is especially important to Emerson. How do you look at your own spirituality as an investor? Because we, we think a lot about our own spirituality. And then my second question would be, how do you think about Buffett's spirituality? Because Emerson would argue that's very important to the, the ability to be self-reliant. Yeah, that's it's a great question. I'm going to try to parse it, parse it out. Um, you know, I, I don't say this wrongly, but to me, business-driven investing, that is, you know, trying to figure out businesses and they have these stock prices associated with it. But business-driven investing, long horizon arbitrage is my spirituality. I mean, I... I think it's just a wonderful way in which to look upon how markets operate over the long term. And there's, there's, there's rhyme and reason to it. I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, you know, it will self-correct to get you a price close to the growth of that intrinsic value over time. And so that's my spirituality, that this works. And if I own a good business over time, and it, you know, definitions of good businesses, the value of that business is going to go up at a rate of return, you know, better than the me putting in the S&P 500 index. So sure. that's that's my church every day. Now, you know, having said that, um, it is very tough, you know, uh, and, and there's a reason why, you know, you guys in the desert are probably going to be buffered better than, you know, most that are living on the coast. Uh, and Warren said, you know, Omaha was a great place to, to do this because you can, you know, a lot of noise and stuff like that, but that that, that the spirituality of, of compounding wealth over time, and then you can argue about what to do with wealth. But you know that, that that's the spirit. That's my church, and and so I try to try to live in that church as much as I can, and realize that even though everybody goes to church Saturday or Sunday, whatever the case may be, you know there are days Monday through Friday where the world seems to not be going to church, and you kind of you got to live through those bad times and, and get to the other side, but. For me, the spirituality is just looking at these businesses and going, boy, these are just fantastic companies doing great work, great products, great services. And it's just fun to watch them grow over time. And then it's sometimes comical, not always comical, to see how the market misses it. And, that, and there's your opportunity set. Well, yeah, and to your point about spirituality, I mean, 
this is part of who we are. We can't do anything else. We can't think any other way. It's how God made us. And just like we're spiritual and physical, same thing is true in investing. We obviously are humans and we can adapt, but this is part of who we are. So um, let's see, you have, a, you have another uh, great truth that I'd like to chat about because I think it's really interesting to think about our industry, you know, kind of even outside of Buffett, but you quote Warren when he said, quote, I am a better investor because I am a businessman and a better businessman because I am an investor, end quote. In our industry of investment management, those are treated as mutually exclusive. CEOs are never investors and, and CIOs are never business people. Um, I, I, I like personally running our business because I believe it gives me and our, our firm a cumulative advantage compared to other investors out there. How do you think about the detachment of business versus investing in the investment management industry? Well, to me, that's, you know, that's a commandment. That's, you know, almost the holy grail. Um, and, and when Warren, and I had made the argument that I think Warren turned out to be a better investor because he was a business person and obviously mm-hmm. was a better business person because he was an investor. And he would say to you, having both of those working simultaneously is what allowed me to go to the head of the class. And I think that's 100% sure. correct. So you, you wrote that Graham Newman uh, were dissuaded from visiting and questioning management because it would bias them. Um, and then you, I'll pull a quote from the book, quote, Graham even refused to look at a picture of a CEO worrying that might prejudice his analyst if he didn't like his analysis, if he didn't like the photo, end quote. Um, I work with this Ben Graham you speak of. Uh, Bill is not a little stitious. He's superstitious when we interact with management. Um, we believe that our industry, due to incentive structures like Wall Street calling on you and saying, hey, Robert, we'll get you access to this executive team. And, and that's kind of that corporate access gig that Wall Street does. Um, but, but we actually find little value in it other than just what's their vision, what's their capital allocation, and then what are they doing with their own stock? Do you also feel that our industry is too caught up in this idea of management meetings? Well, in the old days, um, first of all, that, that quote about um, Graham, they built a picture and, and all that, 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 that came from Janet Lowe. And Janet Lowe had written a biography about Graham. And when you go back and think of, you know, she was, you know, Graham was not interested in the, in the future so much as he was in history and in the present. He was trying to buy sure. the present at a discount. And, and it was because he really had two life-altering is one, he lost his dad when they first moved here from Europe, and you know his mother was desolate and tried to keep the family together. And the second was when he actually almost lost all his money during the uh, 29 stock market crash. Well, actually, it was the, the recovery after that. So you had two life-changing episodes of, of, of being on the streets almost. And so the apology that he outlined after losing the money in 1930 was, I'm not, doing, I'm not losing money again. And so it really was you know, a bird in hand, not two in the bush. Sure. And, and that's what drove drove Graham Graham to do that over time, but um, I think I think where the value added is harder today to get managers to talk because of Reg FD. I can remember going out with Tom Russo and an investor and Russo Gardner Quinn and Coyote Fund, and Tom and I would go out um, on the road and visit management. You could actually sit down with the CEO and go through capital allocation and what you're going to be doing and stuff like now you're not going to get anything from any C-suite that's not on the PowerPoint presentation uh, that's on the web. So sure. there's not much, that's not much that you can do to meet with management yeah. with reg FD. Um, you know, now management has to give you uh, insights simultaneously to everybody on the planet at the same time. And so the days in which you could sit down with the CEO and have a one-on-one, those days are gone. 
uh, and they were very valuable. They were insights that you had that somebody else didn't have. Now those management insights are released simultaneously to everyone. And the only thing you can do now is your analytical judgment that what they're doing, does that make sense? Or what they're doing doesn't make sense. And you might have that observation that's better than someone else. But management interviews are, 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 not, are not as insightful as they used to be because of Reg FD. Yeah, yeah, because when we talk to uh, Lauren Templeton, you know, I think of like when Sir John in the 70s would talk to executives, I mean, they could pretty much tell you all they wanted. <laughs> so I always wonder how much of an advantage that was to your point. And, and, and I think a key point in here to your book was there was an information advantage at the time that Ben Graham created his framework and Warren had an information advantage. Uh, the, the stories of him sitting and going through S&P sheet after S&P sheet culling and trying to find the, the, but, the, but as you point out, those are shorter term advantages that have gone away to your, but you, actually, I think you do a really good job explaining that. And, and then that got replaced by being the businessman investor that replaced that information advantage. So let's go to your discussion of C's candy, which is, uh, it's a good segue to that. Uh, you point out C's was producing 4 million in pre-tax income and had tangible assets or what I'll call book of of $8 million. Cole looked up the corporate tax rate in 72, which was 48%. This means that C's was producing 26% ROE, which, which could assume was also primarily free cash flow. Buffett moved from valuing current net worth, aka book value, to value the, uh, plus the return of the business, aka book value growth, with what they learned from C's. Isn't it as, as simple as that? Yeah, I have no dispute about the math, and I think you guys have got it right. I think what Warren did was, you know, understood the practicalities of what it was like to own a business that gave you so much cash every year. It's kind of like, sure. okay, I like, I like this. I like this a lot. And then you might reverse engineer it and said, how did we get here from there? But, but to the point about informational advantage, it's, it's, you really, you're right, Bill. It's, it's amazing that, you know, the, the, the advantage Buffett had in the fifties was he actually read, you know, Moody's and S and P books. But back in those days, and it may mean, it, you know, I'm interested in your in insight, it may not be that much different today. People just don't read and don't think. They're, okay. they're doing more on rumor and what did this person say and I got a tip about this and somebody on the radio <laughs> was talking about that. And that was going on in the 50s. Nobody actually did the work, but Warren actually did the work. Um, now people are still, I think, largely, um, you know, still living off of tips and news headlines. Now, having said that, I, I was at a you know virtual conference at uh, J.P. Morgan. Picked up some intel at this conference on on derivatives and quantitative strategies, and they mm -hmm. I think this was July, and they they pointed out their trading book. And J.P. Morgan does a lot of trading, obviously, and and they said their trading flows through July of 2022, 90 percent was coming from passive, quant driven A AI and macroeconomic directional forecasting, yeah. and only 10 percent was coming from fundamental. Okay, well. In that market, nobody's doing business analysis. <laughs> They're trying to figure out the next price change and to be on the right side of it. And, sure. and you can see it in the market. You can see how the market flashes immediately red, immediately green within microseconds of a bit of information that comes out at 8.30 in two microseconds, and, and it moves that quickly. In that world, um, we are short-term disadvantaged as business investors but it's serving up a menu of some really interesting stocks that, that, that are probably going to do much better even in a sideways market over the next two or three or four years because they're so massively underpriced and they still have good long-term attributes. Now, when the market turns bullish, 
all the macroeconomic forecasting guys, AI, quant, all these guys, they're going to become long-term investors and go, boy, these are great companies. (laughs) I really want to get long this stock and stuff like that. But in bear markets, the fundamental investors are are the minority. They're just not that many. Nobody's interested in what you think Google is going to be worth over the next five years. They're like, I don't want it to go down over the next five days. Sure. And and that's that's what you live in in bear markets. But that's the opportunity set for guys like you and me. Well, to, to your point about C's, um, and you know, you point out how important free cash flow is in your book. It's a really important piece. And I I know when I've heard like you know Bill Miller. Uh, interview before he says it's the number one thing like it's it's just the easiest thing to value is free cash if c's was coming back where most of that income right that kind of return on equity was just income it wasn't free cash then it's not nearly as valuable to you to buffett's point right but that's it was coming back in free cash most of it um and hence made that 20 percent six percent return on equity look like a gold mine <laughs> well um, and i did yeah and i didn't i didn't emphasize this enough but i think the trick on c's candy was its capital reinvestment budget was negligible <laughs> negligible exactly it, 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 it's like it's like minting cigarettes you know? Yeah, the machines that were making the candy were the same machines for ten years, twenty years. You didn't have to put any money back into the business, so it was all free cash flow. Uh, uh, you weren't there was uh, no reinvestment. All you had to do was oil the machines. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so, exactly so, so, right. So, so to sort of pivot from C's to another, you know, great Buffett business um, that he's purchased and made quite a bit of money on. Let's go to Coke. Um, so I wrote a piece uh, early earlier uh, this year where I, I look. We did a lot of study into the you know, what were the numbers at the end of 87 for Coke? Um, we also studied a lot of the 1970s in Coke because that was kind of the dismal period um, in the business. So, you know, Buffett looks at the 87 annual report. He sees they're producing about 20 to 30% return in equity. He buys it in 88. Um, and based on the book multiples, he was paying for that, call it almost 30% return equity. He was not paying big book multiples, right, to get that kind of compounded growth. Um, people criticized him because he was paying higher price earnings ratios. But again, price earnings ratios don't tell you what you're growing your net worth, back to our discussion earlier, right? And then it explodes to 50% uh, from there, and he buys more the following year as this ROE just explodes in the business, okay? So and, and, I, well, I, so my question to you is that how did the ROE explode, right? And you know, you know, Roberto Gazzietta changed Warren's viewpoint of what Coca-Cola was going to become. And so- sure. When Gozietta got in there, he just said, this is the way we're going to do it. You know, if you don't earn your cost of capital, you're going to get sold. Everything that does earn its cost of capital, we're going to reinvest in you, which was basically the syrup business. Correct. And, oh, by the way, we're going to buy back stock. And then Warren heard that and said, this is probably the most rational allocation of capital that Coke could ever do. And he, you know, but to his testament, he only had a $3 billion portfolio and he bet a billion. That was a big, big bet. That's sure. a big, big time bet, you know, and... uh but Gazzietta laid it out, and I think he said, look, if he does this and executes accordingly, we're going to make a lot of money. And, and as you point out, Cole, the math was there. So, so in the first 10 years, though, he made an unconscionable amount of money. I he mean, made like, about 10, 10 yeah, full, nine years. the kind years. of money you and I hope to make. Now, what's interesting is really since, you know, we, we talk a lot about the inevitables when Buffett called Coke and Gillette the inevitables. It was like the kiss of death. Right. And it's like at that point is it's like you're 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 Matthew McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street sitting there pounding your chest. Right. And the problem is ever since then, um, you know, I think if I look back, if you look back to those junctures, I think the the Coca-Cola for 22 years 
uh, you know, has been a market performing security while running high return on equity, which means that people were paying too large of multiples. I'm not talking PE. I'm just saying like multiples relative to what they were going to grow their capital at. Was it the multiples for the return on the business? Again, we're just too high for a 22 year period. Well, probably the multiples were higher in 19, you know, uh, 99 at the end of the 10 year period as the market was going to 36 times earnings. The multiples for everything were getting pretty much higher and, and it was hard to do that. The other thing that, you know, that happened with Coke is that the low hanging fruit that made the 10 bagger, that, that was pretty much gone in 10 years. Yeah. The, the stock yeah. bag bags and getting rid of all the, you know, the, the bad businesses and rolling that into the syrup business. Things that haven't been talked a lot about is, uh, the fragmentation of the beverage business. I mean, you know, the competition at the at the counter sure. at the Seven Eleven for for beverages today is it's absurd. You know, if you go in and look in the cases yeah. in the Seven Eleven or the Wawa, whatever the case may be, is you know, Coke doesn't have the market share, the shelf presence that it had twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago. Sure. So it's harder business. Yeah. Now, they, they've still got an international, but there's also competition in international. So there's a lot of things that people are doing to get a refreshment, a beverage refreshment today that they weren't doing 40 years ago. Agree. And to your point, I think you mentioned this in the book. I'm just, I don't have my notes, but I want to uh, comment on it. Um, you, you kind of referred to S-curves at one point in your book. Um, and, and we're seeing kind of the high end of that S-curve for Coke, where they went through this period where, you know, the reinvestment was fundamentally changed. And at, at the steady state they're at, they really can't change, to your point, the return on the business because, um, you know, they, they're dealing with law of large numbers unless there's something f- fundamental they can change. It can't. So the, the other thing, because we look back further and said, okay, it's looked bad from a 22-year period. But if you actually go back from the end of 1990 to today, Coke is, a, is an S&P 500 performer from the end of 1990, including dividends. So really the leverage in that 10-bag story was like that first two years, he just made so much money in two years, it was crazy. Well, the, the Berlin Wall fell, and, and that opened a lot of markets to uh, Gazetta's strategy, right? In other words, the, the globalization was just getting started, and there are people around the world that a clean drink of water in the form of a soda pop looked pretty darn attractive in comparison to where they were. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, you know, I think you, I think we're all saying the same thing, which is the better economic returns of Coca-Cola are likely behind them, not ahead of them. Yeah. yeah. You, you, uh, uh, you brought up one of our favorite studies uh, from Martin Kremers and, and uh, Pitagisto and Ann Kirpareek. We're, we're big fans of theirs, and uh, th- their work proved high active share and low turnover are the key to business-driven investing success. Uh, one of our analysts, uh, Nick Garcia, graduated from UNLV uh, uh, under Parikh's tutelage, and we consider uh, Parikh a friend of our firm. Can you explain to our listeners briefly what Kremers, Pedagisto, and Parikh have proven in their work? Well, they, they, you know, we tried to do this in the Warren Buffett portfolio, uh, but Kremers and Pedagisto took it to a higher academic level when they, they did it past us. What we, if you remember in the Warren Buffett portfolio, we basically were just looking at these concentrated investors, not only including Warren, but Charlie Munger, Lou Simpson, Sequoia, John Mater Keynes, and all of them had the same you know, attributes, which is basically phenomenal long-term track records. And with the exception of Buffett, all of them had um, very bouncy returns, high standard deviation, periods of underperformance. Buffett was the only one during the Buffett partnership that killed it 13 years in a row, but everybody else so they had great long-term returns, but high standard deviation and a periodic underperformance uh, to the market. 
And then we did a short study on just, well, if you took the S&P 500 and divided it by, you know, 200 stock portfolios, 100 stock portfolios, and 25 stock portfolios, what would be the returns over a 10-year period of time? And, and it came out exactly the same way. So we, we did very elementary work on this, but Kremers and Pettigisto then then gave you the definitive work and, and did the did the real, real hard, heavy lifting and found out all of all the mutual funds out there. First was those that had fewer stocks and had high active share that their portfolios were different than the the broad market seemed to have better returns over time. And then the second piece, uh, as you pointed out, was of those high active share portfolios, the ones that really did the best were ones that were low turnover. Uh, that weren't doing a buying and selling. So to me, that's been academically settled. I don't think we have to go down this path anymore as to what type of portfolio you need to run to optimally beat the market. Now, having said that, you might recall in the book that I spent some time on Markowitz and modern portfolio theory, which, you know, even though it was it was born in the 1950s and early 1960s, it really didn't breathe life until after the 73, 74 stock market crash, which then people said, I don't like volatility. I don't like downside. <laughs> and, and Markowitz came back and said, yeah, remember I told you about these, you know, 100 stock, 200 stock portfolios, broadly diversified, non-correlative. They give you very smooth returns. And from there into the new bull market in 1982 was what was born into this new bull market in 82 that everything became broadly diversified and, you know, low vo- low variance of returns and stuff like that, which never beat the market after expenses. And so Kremers and Pettigeuster said, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. And uh, it made perfect, perfect sense. But then we're still back to square one. I can give you all the academic evidence. I can say this is exactly how to do it. Clients, I've never met anybody who said that Warren Buffett methodology, I disagree with that. They go, yep, makes perfect sense. Yep, that's exactly the way we should do it. Where do I sign? And then six months later, they're bitching and moaning about, you know, the stocks are down. <laughs> and so you're back to square one, that no matter how much math you put in front <laughs> of it, to your point, you, 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 you point out that Paul Samuelson bought Berkshire Hathaway in 1970. Okay, And, and I, I find that really, that's a great detail you had in your book because no one said, oh, by the way, he, he, he was sympathetic to Markowitz, uh, but he still invested with Buffett. <laughs> yeah, and then somehow we ran into, I guess we had the quote, I think it was from a Jason Zweig interview, that his son said the reason why he bought Berkshire, that it, it was a tax reason because Berkshire didn't pay a dividend and he could compound you know, an, a long-term return uh, without dividends coming through every year. So part of it was a tax thing, but then I think he saw how great Warren was doing and said, well, let's just let this ride. And so it worked out pretty well, but like you know, but what, sure. once again, you know, there's only one, you know, so one hundred people that, that will do that. You know, there, there's a lot we didn't talk about in our discussion today. Um, and like I said earlier, Bill and I owe you a nice steak dinner, a nice bottle of wine. We can sit there and and have you wax poetically for hours on this. Um, topics we didn't touch in your book that I want to mention. What is the appropriate discount rate, and what's Berkshire's view of that? What's you know what does Buffett say? What does Munger say? I think you have a great discussion there. Um, the chapters on Bill Miller uh, did in the late what he did in the late 1990s, and how kind of his philosophy changed based on what he had witnessed. Um, you know, I, I think is just a great way to think and discuss and, and, and pragmatically think about investing. And also to, to our discussion that we didn't get into um, on Markowitz, the difference between volatility and outcome failure which I think is a big chasm in investing today, to your point. Um, is there anything else from this book that we haven't discussed, um, which we appreciate your time for, um, that you think we should, we should mention to our listeners? 
No, those those are the, the those are, you hit the high points there, uh, Colin, and I appreciate that. I I do think that we need to do more um, explaining on the difference between modern portfolio theory and its assumptions about how to make money and business driven investing, which is a totally different world, totally different objectives, totally different guideposts, and things like that. And and people kind of vacillate between the two worlds and don't understand the rule sets are different for both strategies and. At the end of the day, um, as you guys have found out and discovered and, and succeeded, uh, you know, business-driven investing is the best long-term approach to compounding wealth over time. And you know, modern portfolio theory at best gets you mediocrity and oftentimes less than what the S and P is going to do if you just sat on your hands. So you know, I think you just got to continue to pound that on. But you're you're fighting windmills, guys. <laughs> you know, this this modern portfolio theory is deeply embedded in academics, universities, large money managed organizations, and they're not going to go away and take it take it idly and, and lay down. But, but, you know, yeah, but, but so they, what Warren and Charlie, they say the secret to life is weak competition. Weak competition. And we really appreciate <laughs> them being there. In fact, I think you even mentioned like you could kind of want to be sick and demented to just hope that they survive forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Robert, a question: What what books are you reading right now? Because I know you're a big reader. Um, I'd love to hear any any titles that you're currently working on in your reading. Yeah, um, well, I, tr- I do try to read uh, fiction a lot at this time of the year. You know, I'm, I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan. It's a little too dark, probably, uh, for your audience. But Cormac McCarthy is a wonderful writer, and he's got a couple books out. But the ones that I'm looking up on my shelf, The Chip War. Um, I own you know, Qualcomm, and uh, uh, we've got you know investments there, and Nvidia a little bit, not much. Uh, ASML, great great company that does fab and, and building of, of that. Chip War by Chris Miller is a phenomenal book that I enjoyed okay. quite a lot. Um, trying to think else, what uh, at this time of the year we're doing more reviews than we're doing anything else. I did read. Um, I think uh, we didn't get into Bitcoin, and we don't need to, but the future of money. Uh, by Prasid was was really quite good, and you know, trying to understand how that works over time. Uh, there's another book called uh, The Price of Time. This was good. This is Ed Chancellor, just basically it's Long Horizon Arbitrage, trying to think. yeah, it's a pretty popular book right now. I agree. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Uh, and so that's kind of what we've been noodling on. So one last question. Uh, we always like uh, great portfolio managers to have a chance to. You already mentioned Google. What are two or three stocks you like right now? Well, like I said, I never, I had never owned Microsoft until this year. And, and you know, when you kind of look at Microsoft, and, and I know it's got problems with the Activision deal and stuff like that, but, you know, when it, when it got at the same multiple of, of Coca-Cola, you, you knew that there was an arbitrage here. And, and it wasn't get long Coke. You know, Coke's a great business. But, you know, Coke, if you kind of run through the business, Coke grows, I don't know, 6%, 7%, you know, if they're lucky and has, you know, 15% return on capital. And Microsoft grows at 15 to 20%. Azure, we was listening, I was on a marketing meeting and listened to the CTO at Microsoft Azure. He said, you know, we, we, we've slowed down Azure. It's only growing 30% this year versus 40%. I was like, boy, that's a really bad problem to have. You're only growing 30% a year. Um, that that's a great business. I you know I've owned there uh, the, my twenty five stocks. You know fourteen I'm, I've owned in my portfolio for eight years since inception. Haven't sold them. Uh, Apple's at the top of the list, and you know we think that's great. Google, you know probably if you take the cash out of sixteen times earnings. You know as, as Warren Buffett said with Coke, if I gave you if I gave you ten billion dollars, you couldn't unseat Coca Cola. Well, if I gave you a hundred sure. billion dollars, you could you couldn't unseat Google. You know you, there's no way. It's already game set match. It's over. 
So, you know, I, I think the mega cap growth um, is, is phenomenal businesses. They're not going away. Yes, I understand the politics and the antitrust and stuff like that. They're not going away. They're global businesses. We've made a ton of money in fashion goods. We've owned Louis Vuitton since inception. Um, this is, uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you kind of go through uh, when you get discretionary money, you want better tasting food. So we own Nestle. You want better tasting alcohol. So we own Diageo. Uh, and then you want household products. Unilever's been a great company, although, you know, slipped over the last couple of years with a management snafu. But with Nelson Peltz there now, I think, I think things will be better. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we've done you know we've owned Mastercard, what a great business that's that's worked out pretty well. But the semiconductors are stupid, silly cheap, and not too far behind them are the software businesses. Things that have gone down the most in tech land uh, look very very interesting to us. Nice. Well, a book I just cracked into that I'll recommend um, uh, is the Code by Margaret O'Mara, which is like the history of Silicon Valley, and uh, I, she's going to be joining us on the podcast in the new year. Um, which I think uh, she also, since I'm a, I'm selfish, uh, she is the, uh, she is a professor at the University of Washington, which we're big Washington Husky football and basketball fans. So um, that'll be a, a one we'll look forward to. Um, and we'll have to check out the books that you mentioned. Uh, the Chip War um, would be a very fun read as well. So um, Robert, we thank you for joining us again and, and kicking off the second season of the podcast. I think there's no one more apropos than you to do that. Um, everyone should go out and buy a copy of his book, Warren Buffett, uh, inside the ultimate money mind. Uh, I also want to thank my dad, Bill, for hosting with me today. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.